Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. All of these obstacles, and the difference between those two states is that Vermont is the whitest state in the country, 97% white, and Mississippi is the blackest state in the country at something like a third, a third of the populations. Many states have passed new election laws since 2020 to restrict voters' access to the polls. What effect is this going to have on next Tuesday's midterm election, and what stories should newsrooms be covering? I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Matt Dorenzo is the editor-in-chief of the Center for Public Integrity. He oversaw the center's 50-state-plus D.C. investigation of how voting access has changed since the 2020 election, and is here to talk to us about it. Matt, welcome to It's All Journalism. Hey, it's great to be here. So first of all, as I, as I want to do, I, I like to find out a little bit about my guest. Tell me about your, your journalist journey. You know, what got you interested in journalism and, and what was the path that led you to the Center for Public Integrity? So I started as a reporter at my local weekly newspaper in Maine, like the day after my 18th birthday. And, and it happened because I was a college dropout and it happened because I had a short attention span and I didn't know, couldn't settle on any one thing. And it was the the opportunity to like write about science one day and then religion that afternoon and then cover sports that night and then do something different the next day. So that's how I got into it. And I just never looked back, I guess. Journalism, journalism always attracts the the high achievers. <laughs> no, I, I mean, it's funny because every once in a while we get people on who say, yeah, I've been, you know, when I was in kindergarten, I put together a, a newspaper about my family with weekly updates and things. And so, I mean, they're all types. And I've met many good journalists who did not go to journalism school, who came to it late, who sort of stumbled in one day. And, you know, I liked writing papers or I like, you know, talking to people. And, you know, I think I want to try this journalism thing. So anyway, how'd you end up at the uh, Center for Public Integrity? So most of my career was in local news. So reporter, editor, you know, daily editor. I did a corporate director of news thing for a while. I worked for family-owned companies at first, and then I worked for the old journal register company, Digital First Media, got the whole all the global capital experience and kind of self-ejected from that after I had to lay off half of my newsroom years ago. And then I came at it from the other side or like kind of what was, I really had a passion and an interest in what was replacing the decline of newspapers, like, you know, the newspapers that were victimized by the hedge funds and others and just market forces. And so I was the first full-time executive director of an organization called Lion, which stands for Local Independent Online News. And the whole job was supporting basically laid off journalists and others who were trying to become business people by starting their own, you know, online news sites to fill these deserts that had been created. So to me, it was like a thousand flowers blooming in the desert. I loved it. Then I went back to Hearst as uh, vice president of news for their Connecticut papers and then came over to the kind of national perspective side, but a national perspective side that has was making a transition to really trying to build capacity on local news organizations, which has kind of been my specialty. I'm familiar with Lion. Technically, I guess I worked for three months for a Lion organization, ARL Now in Arlington. But anyway, that's another story. <laughs> but, <laughs> and it's interesting. I, I like the idea that you sort of recognize that things were replacing these newspapers that were dying or newsrooms that were disappearing because people still needed the news. They may not have been supporting it to the point where they, it could sustain itself in its old models. But 
you know, recognize that it was really great. So let's talk a little bit about who counts, which is the uh, center's look at voting inequity across the U.S. I'll just say right right now, it's a really great read, and there's just so much data in it. So it's so interesting. You know, what did you set out to do with this project? So first of all, just to back up, just for for readers who may not know, Center for Public Integrity was one of the first nonprofit model news organizations in the country. I think the third, like Center for Investigative Reporting was a couple of years earlier. And, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning investigative news organization kind of known for ignoring the daily news cycle, going deep into issues, right? And I came on board two years ago, right after we had uh, changed our mission to really focus on investigative reporting about inequality in the United States. And so voting rights and kind of, you know, access to democracy, as we say, even kind of like a larger framing, you know, it's the right that protects all other rights. And what we set out to do with Who Counts ahead of, you know, midterm elections where a lot, I think, is at stake, no matter kind of where, you, where you're coming from on the political spectrum, is we saw existing patterns, but definitely kind of almost an unprecedented in the past 50 years kind of cycle of the past two years where there was just attack after attack on voting rights and access to voting in ways that had, would never have gotten to that stage in the past because of the Federal Voting Rights Act and the Supreme Court's interpretation of civil rights, which are, have changed pretty drastically in recent years. What you said about democracy, you know, 10 years ago, I would not have, you know, it's like a First Amendment, you have to protect the First Amendment, right? Because it's the first one. And that's the thing that's going to allow you to do everything else. But really, it's voting. Without voting, you know, if you disenfranchise people, then, you know, they don't have a say in their in their government. Probably, not probably, we could look into the history of America, we look at Jim Crow laws and things like that, that there were large groups of people who lived in the United States who were disenfranchised. And as somebody who's been in and out of local journalism for the last 20 years, I can tell you that people have talked about this. People have talked about, well, that's a very, you know, restrictive bill that the General Assembly has passed because it's presented as a, you know, we're protecting people's rights because we're really concerned about voter fraud. We're really concerned about the wrong people are, you know, so we're going to have these really restrictive or really onerous ID laws and things like that. So I know this is a thing that's been sort of reported around the country, but I think the focus has been greater in the last, you know, five years, four or five years. Right. The other kind of thing that I think we knew that we wanted to to show and prove out was that, yes, red states, southern states that used to be constrained by the Federal Voting Rights Act that have not been since 2013 and in the past couple of years with other Supreme Court decisions, the door has been kicked even wider open, have rushed to pass a bunch of legislation that that very, very pointedly targets types of voting and circumstances that disproportionately put barriers in front of Black voters, Indigenous voters, Latino voters, younger voters, and whether intentionally or as a consequence, voters with disabilities as well in a serious way. But we also knew that the baseline was not equal to begin with in those states, but it was not equal to begin with in all, literally all 50 states and in D.C., there's inequities in the access to voting. Your access to voting and the ease with which you can do it is different than mine for a variety of factors, right? I'm saying hypothetically the two of us. I wrote a column kind of accompanying this, explaining how we how we did it. And I, I led with a, a kind of a tale of two states, right? If you'll indulge me for a second. Sure. Here's the 30-second version of it. In Vermont, everybody's mailed a ballot. They can return it, like let's say postage paid. 
but there's also like 10 drop boxes in their town, maybe, right? That they can put in. They have all month to do it. And then if they don't want to do, they want to go and have the social experience and vote in person. There's weekend and night voting hours. They can do it seven days a week in a particular town, right? If they were convicted of felony theft when they were 20, no worries, because that they never take away voting rights from people who are imprisoned or have been convicted. There are only two states in the country. This is Vermont, of course. Yeah. So all these things, you know, if you speak a different language, there's language assistance. And they, they, they're trying to think of everything. And it, it is like all kinds of accessibility. Right. On the other hand, in Mississippi, if you want to vote absentee or you have a disability or something like that, or you more likely you work in a job where you just can't get the time off because you have to get your pick up your kids from daycare. And it's like, you know, right. Or you're out of gas in your car in the, the polling place is 15 miles away instead of five because they've closed polling places now that they're allowed to do it because of the Supreme Court decision, right? So all of those factors, everything about Mississippi requires you really to be there on election day because you have to, you only can do absentee for a certain limited restrictions. They're definitely not mailing you a ballot or an application. If you do manage to get the excuse down, you have to have a notary public sign it and seal it in order to submit the ballot. There's nothing like drop boxes a huge, huge percentage, I don't have it on my fingertips, but a huge percentage of the population can never vote because the rights have been ta- permanently taken away because of a felony conviction. And that's like off the charts, disproportionately Black presence, right? So all of those factors making it difficult. Then when you do show up, you have to sh- have a certain kind of state government issued photo ID. And if you don't drive, you have to go pay the money to get that if you can get someone to do it for you, right? All of these obstacles. And the difference between those two states is that Vermont is the whitest state in the country, 97% white. And Mississippi is the blackest state in the country. That's something like a third of the population. When you disenfranchise that many people in your state, you can pretty much, you know, set up the election how you want it to go. You know, another thing that we looked at in states like Mississippi and others is you have a third of the population is black, and then you'll have one out of 12 congressional seats being represented by a black person. Yeah, that's the gerrymandered district where you you have something that's counties away tied to an urban area, basically tying together the two centers of uh, a black population. We've seen that over the years. And then it's certainly significant when you get, like the last time in, in 2020, you know, which coincided with the census, and there was even some attempted massaging the, the census to do certain things, because that's kind of the point where you know, the states decide how the maps of the congressional races are going to be, be drawn. So who's got the power of that? We've already forgotten about the whole debate of the census not being done correctly and undercounting minority voters, right? <laughs> now we're just worried about the gerrymandering that came after. To, to, to... Yeah, we're at the, like, the worst buffet in the world. There is just right? too much bad news being served to us, and it's difficult for us to, our plate is overfilled. We can't take any more items. And because everyone is in important in different ways to our, our basic rights uh, as citizens in a, you know, a democracy. So obviously, yes, there's a need to do this. There's probably a greater need, I would imagine. How much is the, the big lie sort of factored into what's happened over the last couple of years? So there's definitely other underlying factors behind this that I think would be driving it no matter what. One is the Supreme Court saying it's okay, for one thing. It's a big one, right? And secondly, is the huge demographic shifts that are happening in this country that are driving not only 
this backlash, but a lot of other kind of culture war stuff and other things like that, dog whistle politics. But the idea that, you know, white non-Hispanic people will be a minority in this country is leading to things like the gerrymandering and voting restrictions and stuff like that. But what the big lie has been used to do is it has provided the cover and, and the rhetoric around the stuff, the restrictions, the stated rationale is to combat voting for voter fraud, right? Right. Which there's no ev- real evidence of. There's no real evidence of voter yeah. fraud, except you have a party who's repeatedly saying that a major national election was stolen and, you know, votes were not counted or, you know, what, what other shenanigans happened behind the scenes. Right. That big top level assertion without the specific evidence behind it has driven a lot of this stuff. And it's another factor in addition to those three things, but maybe a vehicle for it is copycat legislation. And so there are a number of special interests that benefit from the types of voters that are targeted by these laws, not voting. It will preserve their tax uh, credits. It'll preserve their corporate welfare. It'll preserve their ability to pass anti-abortion legislation, for example. We wrote about Kansas. You know, they had a referendum, an anti-abortion legislation referendum, or it was a constitutional change, where 75% of voters, 18 to 35, were against it. And, you know, what they did is they passed laws that made it harder for young people to vote. And they still turned out, there was a backlash to that, I think, and they still turned out and it was defeated, partly driven by younger voters. But but it's, it's a direct line. Again, that shows you what happens when you empower people to vote and they're motivated to vote, that they can change, you know, they can change laws. They can affect change in the way they're governed. Unfortunately, a lot of these things have been there in some states for, you know, decades. It's just now there are all these other factors that are at play, not the least of which is the current state of media, both news and national, and the very partisan nature of our politics at the moment. Not that that they weren't partisan before. So how did you go about this? How many reporters were involved in this? And, you know, how long did it take? And, you know, what was your approach? We've been working on this most of this year, but pretty intensely, maybe say the past four months. We had about uh, 15 reporters who were involved, most of them freelance through various relationships with us, um, some on our staff. I edited the project, but we had a team of uh, three or four other editors who were helping with that. And then we had reporters and editors and our research editor at at Public Integrity doing fact-checking, for example. And so what we did with the reporters is we started out by giving them about 12 areas to look at in all 50 states and DC. So we had kind of like kind of a research function that happened first. We wanted to get a handle on, first of all, like what had changed in the past two years from either a state law perspective or a practice perspective. In some cases, those things, practice changes were ordered by courts versus uh, legislation being passed. So we wanted to document that. And then we looked at 12 areas that we felt like were really crucial to equal access to voting in 2022. That starts with like registering to vote. Can you do it right up until election day? Or or is that not allowed? You live 30 miles from the town office and you have to make two trips instead of one. So you just don't bother, right? So there was things like that. A huge, huge issue that emerged in the pandemic as really a great equalizer, honestly, for voting access was voting by mail and like no excuse absentee balloting. So a lot of our work focused on that. A lot of changes where people were trying to make restrictions or changes where people try to like make the playing field more level related to that. And then there's 
ancillary issues like that. Like if you guys have heard, if you've heard of the term ballot curing, you can submit your absentee ballot, but if you got the date wrong or your signature didn't match, like that's a subjective rule that some states have put in place, or you forgot the right envelope to put it in, does it just get tossed and you have no idea that your vote didn't count? Do they contact you? Do you have time to like fix it? Some states have really thought that through. Some states like Pennsylvania are fighting about it. And some states have said very intentionally, we're not going to let you fix it, you know, because we just, we're, we're trying to like, you know, favor people who vote in person basically is what that is. So we looked at issues like that. We looked at voter ID, a, a known disenfranchisement tactic. We put a lot of emphasis on felony disenfranchisement. We also wrote an ancillary piece about people who are totally have the right to vote, but are being held on misdemeanors or are in jail awaiting a trial that are kind of de facto disenfranchised because they don't really, the state is not giving them the opportunity to actually cast a ballot. So we looked at like everything from an equity perspective, including gerrymandering. You might actually be able to cast a ballot, but does it really count? Does it count as much as the person in the next county? You know, so. Yeah. It's crazy how much, you know, how broad this is as far as the various kind of strategies, you know, again, because this is a podcast about, about journalists for journalists, you know, and a lot of journalists are out there now covering the the midterms that are coming up, you know, what are the types of stories they should be looking at that are related to this? Do you think? I would urge people to look at rules that they think apply neutrally to everybody and question whether they really do, right? Because if everybody's circumstance is different, it's not a neutral situation. And you can, an example would be like, what kind of, if you have photo ID, what kind of photo ID is allowed? Some states have specifically banned student IDs, even though they are from a state government institution and they have a photo on them, right? Or some have like said they're okay, but you have to have extra proof of where you live for it. It's really targeting a particular kind of voter. So there's a million stories in interrogating that kind of thing. The other thing that we found, you know, and I'll just tell you the overall results of the investigation found that 26 states have made access to voting and representation less equal is how we would put it in the past two years. They all happen to be with states that are have Republican legislatures or control. We found that 20 states have made things more equal by taking measures like absentee balloting reforms and stuff like that, or in some cases, making it easier to restore rights after you've been convicted of something. And then there were four states that did not change. And in some cases, that's like a Michigan where the legislature is Republican controlled, tried to pass all kinds of things and the governor vetoed it, right? In um, Idaho, for example, the Idaho House, both houses are controlled by Republicans. Idaho House passed all kinds of stuff. One state senator, Republican state senator, committee chairman, who's more of a moderate and is like, there's no evidence of fraud. Everything's worked here fine. We elect Republicans. Why are we doing this? We're all Other here. Fox News talking about it, right? And so she just put them in a drawer. And that's why nothing passed in Idaho, because it just failed in the Senate like that. And advocates there don't expect that that to last. This person has retired as of this November, and they expect it to happen next year. But anyway, there's so there's stories in every single state. There's stories in every community about inequality and access to voting. And partly that's because of local control. So even in a blue state, even like in a, I don't know, Vermont's a good example, but take a blue state that has fairly progressive laws. Often they allow early voting up to 20 days, say, but it depends on the town. So if you're a town that has usually more white, more affluent, you have all kinds of resources, property tax dollars. Oh yeah, we're going to do Sunday drive-through voting and weekend nights and stuff like that. And then two towns over, a less wealthy town doesn't have the, the money to do that, right? And that's why you see on election day, even in progressive states, Hey, why is there a line right around the corner 
all the way around the corner in one precinct and not in the other. Well, you know, if you don't give them all the other ways to vote and, and have and be staffing enough machines because you don't have the money, that's really an equity issue. Yeah, it's pretty amazing in 2020 covering the elections in Virginia and seeing long lines, but also seeing long lines of early voters because they were convinced that they were going to that something was going to happen to their votes. Now they, they've still got early voting. And actually, what's interesting, I, I just did a story about in Virginia, they moved the municipal elections from May to the November ballot. And there are a couple of reasons they did, they did that, one of which was that voter turnout in May was much lower. The candidates tended to be the same every year because there are only a certain set of voters who would go to those elections. And the concern was when they moved them to November, the races become more partisan because these are nonpartisan races. They'd be on the same tickets as Republicans and Democrats. And so there would be many voters who had never voted for the city council or the mayor or, or whatever. Suddenly they've got all these people. They don't know who they are and what they're voting for. So there are a lot of concerns about that. But that in of itself, that change was done as a means to sort of address Jim Crow laws, an old law that was on the book for the very reasons I said, which is only a handful of people would be able to go to vote in May. They tended to be more white, more affluent. So it's like, why do we have it? Why are we voting in May? We're, we're sort of no, no longer under those laws, supposedly. Um, so let's move it. And so it's interesting. It's going to be really interesting here to see how that plays out. But anyway, that, I digress. You know, I mean, we, we cover inequality, right? You know, since we've done that, and that's really been our focus, one of the things that we emphasize in our reporting, you know, we've always been data-driven, we always do narrative storytelling. But another thing that we emphasize is historical context. Because just as you said, like, there is, you know, felonies, this disenfranchisement is a modern thing that was started in the South and only for this reason. There's no other reason that this has happened was to take away the voting rights of the recently freed men from enslavement. And then um, it became an effective tool to limit the power of that voting block in every state except Vermont and Maine, right? And coincidentally, they have no Black people there practically. Um, and so there wasn't a problem to fix. And that's how bad the origins of those laws are. And so I think blue states have, it's been a process to get to the point even now where it's been questioned, but like it's also been questioned for a long time, but it's hard to change because some of this is built into the state state constitutions. Um, you know, Delaware Supreme Court just ruled that mail voting can't happen this year and early voter registration, uh, late registration can't happen because it's really written into the constitution which was written only by white men at the time, right? With those kind of interests. And also they made it very hard to change. So unless you get 60% of the legislature or 66% of the legislature and a public vote and all that. So that's why some of this stuff persists. All of us are woefully not aware of a lot of the history of many things, many laws. An easy first reaction is, well, it's always been done that way. So it must've been done for a good reason. Right. Well, <laughs> that's not really a, a good defense against change. So- was there anything about this project that surprised you or did things sort of bear out what you kind of expected at the beginning? I think most of it bore out. I was surprised by the level of local disparities. Like it was eye-opening. It shouldn't surprise me, but it's like, I don't think people really consider that because we focus on state policy, right? That was one thing. The other thing that surprised me and just like, a, like, this is really concerning kind of way is <laughs> like, not that all of it isn't, but 
in state after state in those 26 states that made things kind of worse, they added complexity in many cases to the process of voting and the requirements of everything for both voters and for election officials, which are also kind of under attack in various ways, right? They added complexity, but then in state after state after state, and this was definitely a trend, they criminalized it. They turned what would have been a misdemeanor into a felony. So it's a felony if that local election official messes up and accidentally lets someone vote who shouldn't have because they misread the paperwork. And they could go to prison. Do you want to show up for work to be like a $10 an hour polling clerk with that hanging over your head? Or if you had trouble with the law or you live in an over-policed community, do you want to show up at the polling place and risk prosecution when Florida is creating an election police force and Virginia has something similar in the attorney general's office now that we have a Republican administration? It's like a chilling effect that we can't even quantify is what's going to yeah it's not like these people who are volunteering out of the goodness of civil you know they want to participate in the civil process be good citizens need to be discouraged right. for, for a thankless job you know check me if i'm wrong it almost seems like people don't want to have elections you know they're putting up so many barriers well there was a little thing uh i don't know if you recall this january 6th oh my god <laughs> tell me about january 6th yeah where Literally, they didn't want to buy an election. So I think what you're saying is not that, like, where's we're on somewhere on that slippery slope at this moment. Yes. Oh well. <laughs> they're, they're hopefully, they're, <laughs> hopefully there'll be the buffet has some good dessert at the end. Jeez. I would hope your next topic would be something more uplifting, right? <laughs> I don't know. Let me tell you. I mean, talking about journalism for ten years, it's been a real roller coaster because it's very reflective of what's going on in the rest of the country. We're both, you know, participants in. We're also bear some responsibility. A lot of people would just like those disenfranchised or, or nervous poll uh, volunteers. Fewer and fewer journalists think it's worth their effort to stick around. But fortunately, there are enough insane people that, <laughs> that this they have hope in the, the, the idea that maybe if they do their jobs and, and they, you know, shed some light on these things, like your wonderful project, again, is called Who Counts from the Center for Public Integrity. I encourage everybody to check this out. This is a real good eye-opener, and I think it really encapsulates a lot of... We don't pay enough attention to, A, the state legislature, but we also don't pay enough attention to what's really going on in the voting process. We think about it in, you know, maybe in September, November, October, November, but we really don't think about, you know, how a law two years back is really going to negatively impact, you know, our ability and our neighbor's ability to vote. So anyway, I encourage people to go check it out. Matt, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, google play and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found if you'd like to help us grow our podcast like and share our episodes on social media look for us on facebook instagram and twitter it takes a lot of people to create an episode of it's all journalism nicola grisco produced this episode amber healy wrote our web content nick capre wrote our theme music 
Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.